This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Regan DeMatha is a visual artist who's got a new exhibition opening next week uh, at 45 downstairs in the gallery space there. It's called Art, Life, Love, Death, Immortality and a Respectable Haircut. And uh, Regan, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. So um, let's talk about this exhibition, which you created at 45 downstairs, I understand, but inspired in part by travels through Mexico and South America. Yeah, about five years ago, my wife Emily and I uh, went on our honeymoon um, and we started in Mexico at the Day of the Dead Festival and then travelled through Mexico and South America for about mm, five, six months and finished up in Carnival at Rio. So if that was several years ago, it's obviously taken a while then for those influences to what to percolate through into your art? Uh, well, this is the second in a series of exhibitions that I've done inspired by that travel as well as other things. Um, I've recently, well, not recently, a few years ago, we got married, obviously had our honeymoon. Um, I've now got a three-year-old daughter, Ruby, um, and we're currently building our family home. So a little bit of chaos across the board. Um, but because there's been a delay in our house, as there inevitably is, um, and my studio, I applied for the residency at 45 Downstairs and was fortunate enough to get the space. So yeah, this is the second uh, in a series of exhibitions. So I've been thinking about it and working with this theme for quite a while and it's kind of taken on a bit of a new spin with the change in life. Yeah. Um, to, to what degree has the residency at 45 Downstairs influenced the work? Because, I mean, you're in the heart of the city in this what feels almost underground, even though it's not. You have to, uh, for people who haven't been to 45 Downstairs before, it's on 45 Flinders Lane. You kind of enter a building and then descend a flight of stairs. Uh, so it feels like you're going underground, even though it's not. Uh, but there's plenty of light and plenty of space. How has the venue itself influenced the work? Um, it's it's helped me to develop the work, having the space and the people there to talk with and work with. Uh, but it's, it's quite weird because, like you mentioned, it's kind of a bit underground. So I am actually at the back of the gallery as well. So quite often I'm in my own little world and then I walk out and I'm confronted by, you know, the chaos of the city. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting space um, and fantastic people. They've been so helpful and so friendly and incredibly supportive. So talk to us about the title of the exhibition, Art, Life, Love, Death, Immortality and a Respectable Haircut. Uh, it kind of covers everything, I guess. It talks a lot about where I am at the moment as a person, as a parent, um, as a partner, um, and I guess it references back to those themes uh, that I picked up from the Day of the Dead Festival in Mexico and Carnival. So it's about a celebration of life and change um, and tying into those themes and I guess to some extent a lot of retrospection as well. Like because of the stage I'm in at my life at the moment, I'm looking back to how I got here and then looking forward as to where we're going. Now, one of the things that immediately springs to mind for me, if you're talking about being influenced by travels in Mexico and South America, the Day of the Dead, some of the iconography and imagery and so forth associated with that and other parts of uh, Central and South America, how do you avoid cultural appropriation in your work if you're representing images or um, interpreting images uh, from a different culture into your own life and culture? How do you avoid cultural appropriation? Well, yeah, I guess it's always a little bit of a challenge and I'm very mindful of that as well. Um, I think because I've had so much time to sort of reflect upon it and tie it into my own stories as well, that was more the starting point. So I think as um, 
a source of inspiration, it's great, but you've got to be able to turn that into your own story and your own narrative. So what sort, you've, you've talked about that story and that narrative already with the, the reflection on life and where you are and so forth. How does that impact visually on the art you've been creating? Um, well, I always say it shifts a lot between chaos and order. So, I mean, there's a lot of direct references to that particular, I guess, visual experience from Mexico and Carnival. There's a lot of colours, a lot of activity. Um, so for me, it's been a bit of a balancing act between trying to put all that information in there, but then making sure that the editing process is um, done correctly so that the work gives the viewer enough um, time and space to engage in. And we're, we're talk, hearing about colour and so forth. What kind of media are you working in? Um, mostly acrylic and spray enamel, um, but there's also a lot of objects as well. It's primarily painting, uh, but I do enjoy playing around with three-dimensional objects. Uh, I would probably consider myself much more of a builder than a painter in terms of the way I approach my work. Uh, it's more of a construction-type method than primarily starting from a blank canvas and adding to it. But nonetheless, adding layers, adding objects, what sort of objects are you including? Um, so there's some skulls, some blades, um, some toys, you know, tying in with, you know, having a, a young girl, um, a few other bits and pieces. I like to recycle a lot of my materials, so I cut up my old canvases. I've got paint lids, paint skins, uh, old spray cans, so I like to reference the process that goes into the art as well. And how long does it take to construct an image, for example, particularly if you're kind of constructing it from older images? Do, do they count in part of the, the making of the process? It's kind of like, right, let's cut up an old canvas. I painted that six years ago. Now I'll cut it up. Now I'll add it to this. This is a painting that I made yesterday that's taken six years to build. Is that the way you think about the work? Uh, it shifts back and forth. For example, I've spent four months at 45 downstairs, but when I first got there, a lot of the work I had already started or because it was leading on from other works, there was already a lot of momentum there. But I also created a lot of new work while I was there. Um, and the work that I'm finishing at the moment is a big canvas, two metres by four metres approximately, that actually sat on the floor for the duration of the residency. So while I was working on everything else, that was picking up all the drips and the drops and the cleaning of the brushes and the spray cans, etc. So it allows me to then stretch that up and respond to what's already there. So I'm actually interacting with the work itself rather than creating it from scratch. So that work, for example, then, the, if the canvas has been on the ground, how conscious and deliberate is the creation of a work like that as well, opposed to how uh, incorporating accident and, and happenstance as well. Yeah, it, it's. I guess I refer to it as a deliberate accident and there lies the challenge in trying to let that happen naturally. So because I've been working with this process for about probably 10 years or so, I'm aware of the fact that, yeah, you can become quite aware of what you're doing and you try and take control of it, but sometimes you've just got to let those accidents happen Um and allow the work to be a little bit more organic so that you can respond to it um, from a more open-minded point of view. So you're, you're looking at the work with new eyes rather than trying to control it. When you say responding to it with an open-minded point of view, uh, are we talking about an open mind or a subconscious mind? Ooh, a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. I mean, yeah, I guess as an artist you're always switching between the two um, because people have sort of said to me, you know, like, how long have you spent in the studio? And literally I've only spent like 40 days there but I've been thinking about this body of work the whole time that I've been there and for several years beforehand as well. 
It's one of the things that I think fascinates a lot of people who aren't artists themselves is, is this insight into the creative process. The fact that an artist doesn't just set up a canvas on an easel and start painting and have a finished painting two or three days later. As you say, there can be years of abstract thought and influence that culminates in a work. Yeah, definitely. I think it's an ongoing process, you know, because uh, I, I guess we live in an age where there's the emphasis on, you know, the product, the instant, the now. You do lose that creative process in terms of the translation quite often. And that's why I'm really interested in incorporating that process as much as possible as I can into the work so that people can see that as well. So if you've just tuned in, I'm talking with artist Regan DeMather, who's got an exhibition, Art, Life, Love, Death, Immortality and a Respectable Haircut, uh, all the things that you need in life and more, um, running from the 25th of July until the 5th of August at 45 Downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane in Melbourne. You can see some of the imagery from his work at 45downstairs.com. Now, as part of the exhibition, you're going to be doing an artist's talk on Saturday the 29th of July, 1pm, a free event. So what happens at an artist talk? Do you take notes? Are you essentially giving a lecture? Are you trying to keep it much more free form and, uh, and, and responsive to the audience that are there, the, the space, the work itself? Uh, I guess, yeah, because I've got the opportunity to talk with the work around me, I can talk directly about particular works, uh, but I try and keep it a little bit more informal. You know, I talk a little bit about my process, my history. I'll be talking about what I've done during my time at 45 Downstairs. Uh, I've also got a little bit of a ramble, some writing that I've been doing on my daily commute um, that I'm thinking about reading as well, just to give an insight again into that process and the thoughts that have gone into the creation of the work. Now, given also that, to come back to the fact that this was, as well as in being inspired by the residency and the time at 45 Downstairs and your life history, again, to come back to the fact that travelling through Mexico and South America, what was, tell us a little bit about that experience. What impact uh, has, has the exposure to the cultures uh, there had on, on you personally, as well as on your art? Uh, wow. Uh, how do you condense that into a couple of seconds? Um, it's Take us, give, give us as, as detailed an answer as you Well, want. I first came across the Day of the Dead Festival, funnily enough, in the film series The Crow when I was a teenager. Um, there's a scene where they're having a Day of the Dead parade and I always wanted to go and my wife and I are both really keen on travelling. So when we decided to plan our honeymoon, that was one of our first stops. Um, and thankfully, when we did the Day of the Dead Festival, we actually went to Aguas Calientes rather than staying in uh, Mexico City. And we got to see some lovely little festivals. Um, but one of the things there that really blew me away is there's the Museum of Death. And it's one of the best museums I've ever been to. It's just three stories of amazing artwork and talking about the culture and history and how they view death throughout that. And you've got the mix of cultures in terms of, you know, um, the Spanish and the Christians. And, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful mix. Um, and I think... Being able to look at the way they view death and change rather than the standard westernised idea was, yeah, a, a good way for me to be able to adapt and look at change myself. Some people might think it's slightly ironic to celebrate a honeymoon, a significant lifetime achievement by being caught up in a festival and, an, uh, in this case, a museum uh, about death. But as you say, uh, the opportunity to have a different perspective, the idea that death is more about change rather than an ending is perhaps a valuable insight to have on a honeymoon. Yeah, I think I've always enjoyed the fact that, you know, you can, I guess, as sombre or as sad as it can sometimes be, to view death as an opportunity to celebrate life. So it's that, I guess, the flip side of it that I'm really interested in. 
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. My next guest has joined us in the studio. Uh, Perry Cummings is a writer and a performer and has come in to talk about a production called The Association, which is what happens when you draw inspiration from Frankenstein, the Stepford Wives and the Country Women's Association. <laughs> Perry, welcome to Triple R. Hi, Richard. It's lovely to be here. So what really intrigued me about this show is, apart from the fact that it's billed as a secret meeting for women by women, mm-hmm. is that it's a theatre performance, but then halfway through it switches from being a theatre performance to becoming an exercise in shooting and making an, an independent film. Absolutely. Um, I've been working with Girls at Good, which is um, run and founded by Jennifer Monk for about four years now. And in that time, this is the third theatre piece we've done but we've also done a short film piece as well and because um, Girls That Good is all about extending women's skills in the industry we've got myself who's a screenwriter and we've got a couple of fantastic young um, film directors and somebody who has been brilliant at design all as part of the company at the moment so we thought why don't we do a, our own crazy experiment, hire um, a house for a month and not only do an immersive theatre piece but um, also film it and create a short film as well. So not at all ambitious. No. <laughs> no, we like to bite off more than we can chew. <laughs> but it sounds... Look, I think it's a really interesting model to work on the, because... If you're going to all the effort to write and stage an independent production, you've got all the actors there, you've got the technical crew and so forth, why not go that extra yard and then go, right now we just switch mode and go from one art form to another to create a film. Absolutely. And also we have that wonderful luxury that you don't always get with film, particularly with um, independent film, is that the cast have been rehearsing this piece for weeks. So we know it inside and out. We feel like we are these women now. So hopefully that will bring a whole different level to the work as we film it. Tell us a little bit more about the association, the the production itself. As we've, as I mentioned, it's uh, part Frankenstein, part the Stepford Wives, which. People will be very familiar with Frankenstein. Oh, the absolutely. idea of the Frankenstein monster mm-hmm. has, has become such a cultural touchstone. Yeah. The Country Women's Association, mm-hmm. which can... Iconic so, and in this Which country. some people might dismiss as, oh, it's just a, uh, an organisation that makes scones and sits around talking when, in fact, it provides support for isolated women on mm-hmm. farms, uh, access to support for domestic violence. Absolutely. They've, Community support for so many women, and not just in the country as well, but there's some fantastic groups in Melbourne and some of them... Um, we've been um, chatting with and talking to over this process and some of them um, have have been coming to the show because they can strongly identify with that. But the um, Country Women's Association, both here in Melbourne and throughout the country, do some amazing work. And the other influence is the Stepford Wives, which uh, the notion of creating the ideal kind Mm -hmm. of submissive but perfect housewife. I'm very interested in the idea of... Um, perfection and um, our pursuit of perfection everything is airbrushed and I think in this social media age that we get to see the best version of people which can make people feel very isolated and lonely so this is about women who are taking on a hands-on approach to creating the perfect life and the perfect partner um, to highlight the fact that maybe it's in our perfections that we find connection and happiness.
And it's also an immersive work as well. So, and you've already mentioned that uh, you've rented a house for a month mm-hmm. in which to stage the work. That's so, right. rather than a traditional theatre space, file in, sit down, watch a show, I'm already imagining the idea of uh, the audience being welcomed to the house, ushered in, tea. In our own biscuits. secret society Imagine. kind of way, the audience are um, treated as members of the society, perhaps not the inner circle who have been working on a special project that is revealed throughout the night, but they're definitely treated as members. They're welcomed, they're encouraged to give the secret sign, Um, they're part of all the rituals, they're part of the circle that discusses the meetings, the monthly business of our association, and then things perhaps go terribly wrong. It's an immersive theatre event and the audience are definitely encouraged to be a part of that experience but it's in that comfortable way it's not it's like not a, you're audience participation so mm-hmm. people aren't going to be dragged yep. up on stage and used as models or but they yep. are encouraged to surrender to the storytelling and be surrounded by it the wonderful thing about being in this fantastic house which was a brilliant idea of jen and lee our director lee mcclenahan is that you know, literally everything is about the association. This house for this month is our President Betty's house that she's inviting people to. And um, everything from every piece of art on the wall to the boxes of collections that we're collecting for, you know, like um, women with domestic violence and, um, you know, there's pamphlets around. Everything is uh, an immersive experience from waiting outside in the cold to being ushered into this lovely warm house and then being invited into each of the rooms, which are very different. How do you go about... um, Did you have to rent a fully furnished house, for example? We did rent a very... We actually went on Airbnb and then discussed it with the lovely landlord who lives next door um, and they've agreed to us to use their house for a month and it was fully furnished, wonderful art deco. Yeah, mishmash of 1950s furniture. How difficult was it to persuade them to, to say you've got they this place? They were very on- keen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there's some really wonderful, supportive um, Melbourne landlords and owners of um, community halls and so forth who we found surprisingly supportive of these type of projects. I, that doesn't surprise you in some ways, and it's part of a, a trend that I've seen over the last couple of years of theatre in lounge rooms, uh, more unique or boutique or immersive uh, places in mm. uh, escaping the, not necessarily the, the banality of a traditional theatre, it's not quite the right word, but there's a um, something slightly sterile about a theatre environment, even if it's a quite a, a plush, lush theatre, it's nonetheless, there's... Yeah, there's something artificial about sitting in rows and silently watching a work. It certainly helps you to suspend your disbelief. I think that people, um, particularly last night, we had an incredibly responsive audience um, with people taking part in the meeting themselves. Um, And I think people forget that it's a show for that 60 minutes. And it, it certainly is a unique experience. It's something that you won't experience if you just go to a normal theatre. And as we've said, the the fact that it begins as a secret meeting uh, and there are revelations which will occur over the work, Mm -hmm. as we've mentioned, the fact that uh, the Stepford Wives and Frankenstein are two of the touchstones without having to give anything away. You reference Mm -hmm. those works and I can imagine uh, the slow reveal and the slow revelation of something 
slightly horrific, I suspect. Absolutely. I think these ladies are all delightful when you meet them and very real. And as you said, we do um, entice our association members with tea and scones and chats and talk of charities. And then it's very interesting what I feel can happen um, in a group when you start to shift into something just incrementally, step by step, into something that may cross an ethical or moral line. And I think that's perhaps what these women are now doing. How challenging is it to write a piece like this, knowing that you do have to have this subtle and, as you say, incremental uh, shift from uh, from sweetness into something much darker and more uh, more confronting. I think grounding it in reality was really important. Jen and I and um, Lee, the director, did a lot of research. Jen went to several um, CWA meetings, both in the country and here. We did a lot of reading. Um, I think grounding it in the truth of these women and um, the strong motivation for them, not only the desire to help each other, but what's lacking in their own lives. Each of them has something very important lacking in their own lives that drives them to um, be a part of this. But I think really grounding it in that um, sense of the real and that these are real, fully fleshed, three-dimensional women that you might meet in any CWA meeting. The production we're talking about is Girls Act Goods production of The Association, which is on now until the 30th of July Mm -hmm. at uh, number 64, which is the house at 64 Pentland Parade in Yarraville. That's right, two minutes away from the Seddon Railway Station, so it's very easy to get to. Uh, And after the season, uh, you are shooting a film. That's right. Yeah, Uh, Mm -hmm. and... In terms of uh, advice for people who have never made a short film, for example, how how complex is it in this day and age of digital technology when anybody can really shoot something on their mobile phone and then you can easily access the software to edit on your computer at home? Is it... it Is it almost too easy to make a film? I think that if you want to um, make a good film, the best thing that you can do is um, give it time and um, it takes an enormous amount of organisation and um, preparation um, and really hone your script, um, hone your actors, which is what Girls Act Good have done. Lee McClanahan has done a fantastic job directing this wonderful ensemble cast and this is a group of women who have been working together for quite a long time. It's one of the strengths of Girls Act Good. Um, But I think time and dedicate yourself to it. I think the best way of learning, my partner and I also make films when we made our first feature film last year, um, yeah, is jump in and, um, and go for it but know that if you want to make something that you're proud of, like um, this wonderful experience that we're having at the moment, is to give it time and lots of hard work. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Karen Therese and Marty Mohammadi have joined us to talk about the work Tribunal, which is on at Arts House in North Melbourne uh, and created by PYT Fairfield, so uh, who are based over in the western suburbs of Sydney. That's it. So, Karen, welcome. Thank you. Hey, Richard. Tell us a little bit more about the the origins of this work. Uh, well, I had 
I got the idea. I was working with a friend of mine, Joe Tan, who's an international human rights lawyer, and he was helping me out on, with some uh, some non arts things. And uh, we wanted. I always wanted to work with him on an arts project, and we started talking about the ideas because we're both queer about doing something about race and sexuality. Um, and we were researching, um, doing a research residency in vital statistics in, in Adelaide. Great company. Great company. And during that time, um, an asylum seeker boat drowned, uh, like, drowned? Uh, oh, yeah, drowned. A, well, a boat people, of asylum seekers. Yeah, yeah, crashed and 25 people drowned. And um, the... The boat crashed just outside of Australian waters and the the bodies were left in the ocean because Australia didn't think they needed to uh, take responsibility for it. And I think it was the first time I'd actually um, felt kind of, I think, personally affected or intimately affected by the crisis. And... um, and I said to Joe, what do we do? You know, what do we have to do to stop things like this? And he said, well, Australia actually needs to have a truth and reconciliation tribunal. So they need to apologise to our First Nations people and then we can all move forward and, um, you know, uh, things like what's happening now with Australian policy on asylum seekers mightn't happen. And I started researching what, what tribunals were and essentially they're made up, you know, my kind of version of it is that they're made up of lawyers and politicians and artists who um and it's kind of a people's court so australia hasn't had one so i thought i would create one create create one and um that's how it it came about so for tribunal uh you've been involved in the production from uh kind of an earlier version of it um and i understand you're from uh, afghanistan originally is that right yeah from afghanistan yeah and how long have you been in australia uh almost four years and in terms in in that time, how have your perceptions of Australia shifted or changed? <laughs> I still didn't really get the question, but uh, you've been here for four yep, years. Yep. What, what did you think about Australia before you arrived? Oh, yeah. And how have your perceptions changed in the four years you've been living here? But your your yeah, idea no, of Australia has changed. Of course, changed. yeah. So. Before coming to Australia, so I, I had a different imagination of how it's going to be like because I heard a lot about the freedom, the democracy, and everything in Australia, and I, and I thought, oh, okay, Australia is the country. If I'm gonna, if I'm going out from Afghanistan, so I'm going to Australia because I heard a lot, and that's a country of opportunities. And when I arrived, so that wasn't my expectation, you know. I'm not uh, It was the. Beautiful beaches. Com- completely like opposite, <laughs> opposite of what I'm thinking. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful country with view, nature, but it's not all about that. So their behavior, that how they behave you, you know, as a refugee, you come here. Yeah, I didn't expect that, that how they treated us. And without saying anything, they just straight away put you in a detention and ask you, bam, why you're here? And uh, day by day, and... Yeah, it completely changed my mind about Australia, but uh, I just, um, I found out that in this country you come alone and you, have, you will find a lot of problems and you have to be strong to survive. And first I was really like sad and then I thought, oh, it's not their problem. It's just, it, this is something that I need to solve it out by myself. And yeah... I started to 
continue my arts and survive. How did you get involved uh, and how did you meet Karen and get involved with the uh, production of Tribunal? Production. The first meeting was uh, everything like just so... uh, Because in the first year, to be honest, I was getting depressed and I used to see a psychologist because it was just really hard for me in Australia and I was alone and I had no one and because I was an artist director of cinema and theater back in my country so I wasn't an easy person to just sit and you know uh, and wait for what's going to happen so I was getting depressed I was yeah visiting a psychology and I told her about you know I was an artist in Afghanistan I really want to do art and she knew Karen and she introduced me to Karen and then after that I yeah got involved with the PYT Fairfield and my life just changed and I started to make arts. I started to make uh, to be involved in some projects and meet lots of Australian people. You know, learn English. My English is getting better, and I'm just still learning. And it was just yeah, my life just changed after meeting Karen and PYT, and now I'm I'm really feeling good about that. And then. Karen just, yeah, told me about the tribunal and I had no idea about what is a tribunal and how it's going to be like. And, yeah, it was just an idea and we started to have, you know, conversation with each other, like six of us and some and six amazing people and lovely stories. And, yeah, that was... And Karen told me that she wanted me to be in the show. And I'm really proud, really proud of being in this show. For some Australians will question the, the idea, they will think of a truth and reconciliation tribunal or commission as being something that happens elsewhere, mm-hmm. East Timor, for example, South or Africa. South Africa. Yep. Uh, we don't need one here, we're a peaceful country, okay. we're not at war, etc. There's been no civil war here, uh, So, which of course completely overlooks uh, treatment of refugees, yep. uh, treatment of uh, our First Nations people and yep. so forth. To, in creating this work, you're stepping into some really provocative and often uncomfortable territory, mm-hmm. but trying to move through discomfort to create comfort, would that be fair yeah, to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my master's research was on comfort, actually. It was really interesting. Um, and, you know, my practice uh, over the last six years has been about um, finding kind ways to talk about difficult problems and difficult issues. And, um, you know, the United Nations sees Australia behind South Africa in, in human rights because they've had the tribunal, the Truth and Reconciliation Tribunal, which is run by Desmond Tutu, and I've recently been to Cape Town. Um, you know, apartheid finished in, uh, you know... What, in the 90s and, well, you know, officially. And, um, you know, Australia still, even though we've had an apology to our First Nations people, we still have not had a Truth and Reconciliation Tribunal that allows Australia to talk about, um, to talk, talk about the truth, the truth of how Australia was established, you know, with the violence that happened to, um, still happens to our First Nations people. So... Um, you know, and, and with Mardi, the only reason I could do tribunal, because I had the ideas there for a while, is because Mardi's, you know, I had to, in Fairfield, uh, where our company is in PYT, it's, um, it's the second biggest um, 
settlement area for asylum seeker and refugees um, in the country. It's got the largest Iraqi community in Australia. You know, the whole the whole community is about um, settling new, newly arrived refugees or, you know, first-generation Australians and second-generation Australians. So Mahdi, you know... Marty's really talented and very committed. So when he arrived, when he came to PYT, he was, um, you know, he was very disciplined as well. And I had a, has a lot of. He has a really amazing career as a feminist theatre maker in Afghanistan, um, and which is part of what the show's about. So the whole narrative, I could wrap the whole narrative around Marty in a way. So he's actually the core. Him and Ani Ronda are, are the core of, of the work and their their stories as as kind of stories and narratives that open up you know, the tribunal. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I find this... We, we've been on, uh, you know, the tribunal's been in three three theatres, two theatres and the, the MCA uh, in less Museum than... Museum of Contemporary Museum Art Museum of Contemporary Art. So three seasons in less than a year, which is kind of unprecedented. And um, we're, we're probably going to be in another, in another season next year as well in Sydney. So people are seeing it as um, a kind of... Someone said at the MCA that um, you know this is this is filling a gap that doesn't exist in our culture at the moment, and it's it's a it's a gap between like arts, you know, and I suppose in politics and community action. So um, there's a real need for it. Another one said this is like should be like church, like tribunal should be on every Sunday. So like when Trump when Trump was um, nominated, we should all be able to go to tribunal, you know. So it, it's kind of um, it, the resonances. I mean, we worked very hard on it. Um, we talked for eight months, at 15 hours a week for eight months before we even got on the floor. So we did some pretty kind of profound work, really, to to get to the where the show is now. One of the the most valuable ways to change people's minds is for them to have personal interactions with people who they may see as outsiders or others or different. Um, the opportunity to speak directly to audiences, to share your story, Marty, with them. How important is that, do you think, in changing people's minds about refugees? <clears throat> Good question. And so the first when I came to this show, I thought uh, it was just about my story. But when I speak to Auntie Rwanda, the elder Aboriginal, and other people, so day by day I found out that this is a good opportunity to it's just I know I'm just talking about my story but I always tell everyone that we are voice of thousands of people thousands of people thousands of people like me in the same situation of me the people who can't you know who can who, who doesn't have the opportunity to just yeah, bring out their voice and say what's what's happening to them and that was the point that we were going to make this show and I always feel like I'm going to this stage, I'm talking to people, but I'm not talking just about myself. This is what's happening to us. This is what's happening to everyone and other people as well. It's just one story. Everyone pick one story, but it's it's happening for lots of people, the situation for us. And I'm really happy and proud that I'm here as a voice of, you know, my other people, my the, all the Fijians in Australia that arrived a long time ago and they were living in the same situation as me. And if I have the opportunity, to, I have to take it very well and just, like, scream it in this stage that, you know, this is our story. And I think that was useful. That was useful. And, yeah, lots of people, they, we changed some minds and they just, 
yeah the because everyone have have a opinion you know diff but it's uh, about refugees and they think you know how they it could be like and it's most of them is wrong mm. we were very when we were making the work we made the decision on that first three days that we were going to not include any politicians or any media in in the production or in any of the narrative of the work so it's really about the human experience and and connection and listening to each other because we worked out that that you know the media and the politicians they they're working to confuse us and to and and kind of freeze people up about you know about these issues and it, it creates inaction so i think you know the tribunal is uh essentially breaking all that down and and there's a lot of truth and clarity in in what what's being said this has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.